You're listening to the ABC Music Talk podcast, a show for those interested in the music industry. This episode takes a look at the interaction between brands and the music industry. But first, a reminder to go row to your videos. Rota is for artists, managers, labels, or anyone in the music industry who needs to create video content for promotion or monetization. Rota makes it fast, easy, and inexpensive to do all of that in one place. Head to www.abcmusic.co and click the Rota logo on the homepage to access a 10% off discount for the service. guest for this episode is someone who has had a successful career in linking brands to music and vice versa. Welcome to the show, Rebecca Jolly. Thank you for having me. No, thank you for coming all the way to the Halley in Shoreditch, <laughs> uh, which I am also, again, once again, using to record these podcasts. So I do hope the sound quality is better than it often is. Uh, nice to be in a treated room for sure. It is. It's nice to be outside with my own house, for sure. Also. Well, yeah, again, this is one of those interviews being conducted during <laughs> uh, during lockdown. Uh, we were just just before we uh, hit record on it, we were discussing the, the, the pros and cons of it. So you sort of have a bit more time and then you also don't at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of time sitting, trying to do things and not having much success at the moment, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I, th- I, think every- felt like I was very efficient at the beginning of this for a while and now it's just kind of everything's just rolled into the same kind of days over and over. It's difficult to get that point of separation sometimes, isn't it? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure most people were sitting at home and nodding along yeah. to, to those comments. Or nodding off. Or, or, well, uh, let's hope not. Uh, <laughs> in fact, I'm very doubtful. Um, okay, so the, the, the bulk of uh, this interview will be discussing an idea that we, we chatted about when yeah. we had a sort of pre, pre-call on this um, about the, sort of the current state of the pandemic um, and, and sort of the impact on music and potentially what role brands could play. Yep. But first, um, as with everyone that comes on the show, they have to tell me about themselves. Um, so this is where we, we go back to the beginning. Um, I do have a decent percentage of people that are kind of in their early stages of their career. So I like to get them to, I, I like, sorry, I like my guests to tell the story of how, how did they end up how did they end up here in Shoreditch uh, with somebody mm-hmm. called Alex Branson? <laughs> I mean, how did, how did we get to that? The dream. The, well, it's a, it's a dream that uh, that nobody has, um, but it is a dream nonetheless <laughs> uh, in that sense. Uh, good. So where did it all begin? What, how, how did you kind of, because you've done lots of different things. Um, I have. I mean, I'd like to think that, or I'd like to say that there'd been some kind of plan that led to all this, but really it's been, that hasn't really been the case. I've kind of, I think my career has kind of seen me jumping around between music and brand worlds, music and brand worlds, and kind of between events and media also. And it's all led up to a point where they all came together in one place. I think, um, I mean, music's something that's just always been my kind of passion and my blood. I went to university in Manchester, and I think that's where I really discovered the music scene. You know, I just became for a while, believe it or not, a massive drum and bass kid and, you know, got so, so into the music scene. And that's what really has really kind of paved the way, I think, for my eventual career in music. But 
Before then, I mean, I studied history at university and I think I finished university and wasn't quite sure what my options were going to be. Certainly wasn't thinking of a career in music at that point. And I feel like, I, I mean, everyone kind of laid out the options as teacher or librarian. I, I was going to say, that, that, <laughs> that, 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 that studying history, like, what do you do with that? I know. Uh, become a historian. I mean, it was great a for a while because yeah. I did had very few hours at university. But <laughs> I, then I finished and I was like, oh, God, what am I going to do now? So... Um, decided to be a journalist and so I did my postgraduate journalism qualification. My first job was actually working, very non-music related, but working for the PGA Tour as a golf reporter, which is actually, I mean, I knew nothing about golf, which I think they quite liked because I I was kind of brought in to write about the more human side of the golfers, as it were. Um, Travelled the world doing that for a while and then decided, I was still up north at that point, decided I wanted to move down to London and kind of see what else was going on in the journalism world. Um, Moved down to London and realised the main thing that was going on in the journalism world was that uh, salaries were incredibly low. (laughs) So (laughs) I pursued that for a while and and then actually ended up getting a job at a PR agency. And so that kind of started my work with brands, really. And I find it really interesting. I worked with a lot of kind of brands, typically partnering them with different cultural pursuits so they could reach their audience in some way and you know that that's where I got a bit of my first understanding of kind of how the brand world was to work and what they needed to achieve from their marketing um and within a few years of doing that actually somebody got in touch with me and mentioned the fact that there was a music company in Amsterdam who was looking for someone to run one of their brand partnerships and I'd kind of been in London for a few years at that point and thought that it could be an interesting change of pace change of scene to move to Amsterdam um wasn't really didn't know the company so decided to go over to Amsterdam and see what it was all about and I'm the person who connected me into it was told me that they they produced these huge events for 50,000 people and everyone dressed in white and it was I was like what (laughs) this was during the time as well when London the London scene the music scene was so incredibly underground it was all very grungy and punky and the band scene I used to promote a couple of nights in London one at 333 and one at 93 for East and it was really kind of really great so much fun so like filthy and fun and amazing and then went to Amsterdam to see what all this was about and this person was right there was 50,000 people dressed in white (laughs) in a stadium in Amsterdam and it was probably one of the most mind-blowing experiences of my life like this huge event for 12 hours and people dance from start to finish the most incredible pyrotechnic displays I'd ever seen light shows it was it was incredible so I was like okay let's do this for a couple of years so came to work for them and it, the event was called Sensation the company was called ID&T um, they also produce all kinds of incredible festivals like Mysteryland and Tomorrowland and Q Dance, which is a hard style thing so that was my first real immersion into I guess the music industry side of things so I was I ran all the the partnerships for Sensation with Samsung and then kind of worked in project management across a lot of their other festivals. So really caught the bug and caught the bug as it related to electronic music as well. Previously, that hadn't really been my kind of area necessarily. So um, yeah, worked there for a couple of years and really started to understand actually how the point of a brand being involved in something like that, both from the music entity's point of view, but also from the brand point of view for them to be creating an experience that so many people were so kind of involved in and so um, 
just I guess kind of it added value to their experience for the night kind of prior to it after the event in content as well the model that most brand partnerships are these days so um I did that for a couple of years and then decided I, I think I missed everything in London and decided to move back to London and at the time kind of continuing that brand and music theme I'd there'd been there was an agency that had really caught my eye for a while at the time called Splendid Communications and they were doing really interesting work with brands in music right it was founded by a couple of guys who were real music heads um but wanted to have a kind of a proper job and a proper business and so set up an agency and they they one of their big clients was Smirnoff and it was that kind of golden era of brands doing really great things they did create Smirnoff um creative grants where they put money into um, people with great ideas in nightlife and it was um, yeah it was that that kind of moved me back to London and I started working with them and again kind of immersed myself in the music and brand world I think also coming from the music world directly then back into the brand world and we actually ended up brokering a partnership between Smirnoff who was our client and Sensation so I actually brought nice. Sensation from Amsterdam to London with Smyrna as the sponsor is kind of part of that. And we did it at the O2 Arena and it was, oh, wow. yeah, it was, it was interesting, very, very kind of interesting time. Um, and not after a couple of years there, we took on a new streaming service as a client, uh, little known at that point called Spotify. Never heard of it. <laughs> that, that will never work. That's a silly name, isn't it? What does it even mean? There hey? were probably a few people in meetings who said that at the time. Yeah, I, no I, I, one I, there, there was, I remember. Yeah. yeah, that absolutely happened. Absolutely. So we, we were working with Spotify in London and then it was at the time when they decided they were going to launch in the US. So um, I, that, I moved to the US 10 years ago now, actually. Wow. In fact, it was around this time 10 years ago that it was fielded in a meeting. And I don't think they'd even finished the sentence before I accepted <laughs> and wow. volunteered to go to New York. So um, I moved to New York with the intention of being there for a couple of years uh, to launch Spotify there effectively or work on the team that was launching Spotify. So I spent my first year in New York it was having the time of my life really but also working on establishing Spotify as a brand in the US and as part of that we did actually was part of the team we did the first Spotify activation at South by Southwest so we did a Spotify house for 10 days the time is a funny thing I don't know if you've been South by Southwest but it felt like we were there for a year in the end I think time, <laughs> time takes on a whole different meaning in Austin but we we did the Spotify house over there so the you know the premise of which was to really establish Spotify as a brand in in that kind of world and also just kind of uh, bring a load of emerging artists through the Spotify house and I mean, it was great. We had like Alabama Shakes and so many great bands just kind of playing in the garden at the Spotify house. And it was, yeah, it was really interesting. And again, we had brand sponsors involved. So it was just still this kind of convergence of the brand and music world. And what, and what was your role at Spotify at that time? My kind of a bit of a hybrid role. I was le I was the US lead for the agency that I moved over with for Splendid. And we did, we kind of did a cross section of work for Spotify. We did a lot of their PR stuff, general marketing, production, um, and kind of pro yeah, producing the activations. We also kind of helped with the brand deals. They did a big deal with Coca-Cola at that time. So we also kind of produced all the marketing and, and uh, various different elements and content and what, what have you around that. So general marketing really um so yeah and so that was my first year in new york really was working on spotify over there which was a quite a nice introduction to the country and then 
I spent I've, kind of towards the end of that year, I, IDT, the company that I'd worked for in Amsterdam, got back in touch and said we've. I just, they told me they decided to launch in the US and would I be interested in running their partnerships division? Um, they were going to be launching Sensation, the infamous White Party, Mysteryland, Tomorrowland all their different kind of properties across the US. So I decided to do that. It felt like a great kind of jump across back into the music world proper. Um, so, yeah, so started in, I think, the January and within two months they'd announced their acquisition by SFX. Um, and I can see you laughing. <laughs> so I feel like you know that there's some stories coming. Um, no, yeah. no. I mean, it, it never looked crazy at any point. It was crazy. Of course it, it was. It was really, really crazy. Yeah. It was, I mean, we went from, I went from this kind of um, Dutch company of like lovely people who I'd known for a long time who were doing amazing things, who had nothing, no motivation other than creating the best possible things they could and, and knowing and understanding the culture of the world that they represented more than anyone. And it was to work with people, it was so invigorating to work with people who had that passion for it. And and I can remember we were in Miami for Miami Music Week when the with the announcement of the SFX acquisition and I, I it was it was interesting. I I did I can remember thinking this is going to go one way or the other, and you know this could either be huge and pivotal and landmark, or it might not be the right thing for them to do. And uh, as I mean, it was perhaps both. I think in the end, but um, and from there onwards was a really crazy few years, honestly. Um, that I. It was it was a kind of a roller coaster, and but I came out when I when I came out the other side of it. I it took me a couple of months and looked back and realized I'd never learned so much in that time as I did during that time. As effects, just the kind of immersion into that world and the crazy things that happened. But I mean, we. So IDT was SFX. As for people who don't know about this, SFX was actually created as a it by Bob Silliman, the late Bob Silliman, who was very kind of fascinating enigmatic man who he'd um he had started american idol he'd started live nate the kind of original live nation and this was his swan song essentially he'd seen what was happening in electronic music and decided to come together with a series of different people like and put together a company to and to acquire all the best electronic music companies in the world essentially and create a behemoth entertainment company um, along with Shelley Finkel and Joseph Rashkoff and all those people. So he so he pulled that together, went on an acquiring mission. There was actually, I think there was a time a lot of people always talked to me about this where every single electronic music in the electronic music company in the world always said that they were waiting for the phone call from Shelley Finkel and it usually came, which always makes me laugh because I had um I got had my own phone call from Shelley Finkel at one point, which was actually how I ended up meeting my husband. He, oh, wow. He he, oh, it's a love story. He match made me with my husband. Um, yeah, so anyway, so SFX acquired all these companies of which IDT was the largest. And so as the person who was heading up partnerships and revenue for IDT, I ended up being pulled into the kind of, I guess, the steering committee and board of how uh, to kind of decide the direction SFX took, especially from a revenue point of view, right in the early days. So I had a series of, very interesting um, 
weekend meetings it was always the weekend i think it was which i think was a bit of a power move they got everyone together from duncan stutterheim from idnt and matthew adell who was running beatport at the time and on disco donny and all these people were kind of pulled into a room with shelly and joe and bob heading up the meetings and there was always around 12 to 14 of us and it, it, they were just the wildest meetings i've ever seen and i'm sure some of the stories i have from these meetings are probably not suitable for podcasts but they it was a yeah, bit of a baptism see, of fire yeah but you see no one listens to this podcast it's just <laughs> you telling me so you, you, go, you feel free feel free to t- tell us all the great i mean <laughs> there was some eye-opening things some are definitely not suitable for podcasts but there was de- there was a moment i can remember a moment and the person shall remain nameless but um bob Sullivan decided in the middle of a meeting, stopped the meeting and decided he didn't like what the guy was wearing at all. Like, he was like, I, I, I won't have anyone wearing these clothes in my meeting. Take all your clothes off now. And the guy, <laughs> the guy obviously protested. And he was like, no, no, no. Called his um, PA in and was like, Carol, come. Here's $100. Go and buy this guy some new clothes. In the meantime, take off your clothes. And basically forced him to stand on the table and take his clothes off and then put them in the waste paper bin and set fire to them. I mean, this is the kind of this, and I was a kind of early thirties. <laughs> like, what? It was, a, it was. A, I wasn't quite sure what to make of any of it. But I mean, I feel like that, like, kind of laid the precedent for what happened for wow. the rest of the time at SFX. It was. Wow. It was. I, can I just say, maybe focusing on the wrong stuff at that point. <laughs> Like a little bit off track. Well, I mean, but then quite abruptly back to... Okay, okay. But how bad were these clothes? Oh, I mean, I... Was it just... They, the, the clothes were fine. <laughs> the clothes were fine. I think it was just a bit of a Bob party trick, to be honest. Uh, okay. um, but I mean, that was the kind of thing that used to go down all the time. And But that's obviously a huge distraction from what we were doing from a work point of view. And we, you know, with this whole acquisition... Uh, routes that SFX went down and all the companies they were crying the 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 obviously the objective of all of it was to create a business and Bob often said like this is going to be my tw- this is my 26th company and it's going to be my most successful one yet and then I'm done wow. um and so he you know the ambition was and these meetings were it was it was really fascinating the ambition was to make it bigger than ever and I hadn't sat in a meeting like that before where the revenue generating strategy was to bring in five brands that paid 50 million dollars each to be involved with it for the privilege of being involved with sfx and and so it was it was a kind of a real pivotal moment i think in understanding like that if you kind of had the balls to do it you could make something like there's some of the parts or make something really really big if you just put yourself out there and kind of laid a claim to it and gave someone the reason and the confidence to be involved in it so um we I mean, and that obviously didn't happen in the end. You know, right. we did a lot. We worked across a load of really interesting brand partnerships. We did an incredible deal with Budweiser, with Smirnoff, with T-Mobile, with various different brands, MasterCard. And it was, you know... I mean, it, how does the pitch go to go? I mean, to, to just come along with this little thing that we're doing. How, what, oh, 50 million. Yes. Just, yes. No, no, no. I'm sure that's in the petty cash somewhere. I mean, <laughs> how, how does that pitch look? I mean, because that's big, right? That's a big I mean, thing for any of those brands. Oh, it's a huge thing. And yeah. I, we, di- you know, we didn't ever, I, we never got there with the $50 million number, but we got a substantial part of the way there, just the confidence. And also, the, the you know, there was a lot to sell. The, there the was, audience yeah. of, Many touch points. So many touch points and such a huge audience. And I think... It was it it was um, just going out there and kind of p- 
putting that to a brand really like the i think the 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 thing that was the main selling point was actually the downfall of the company in the end because we were selling this incredible which is something that has always excited me about working in brands and music which is selling that passion and that the kind of like the raw the raw passion that people feel about music and the energy and like to for it to offer a brand an opportunity to tap, to tap into that and to tap into that world where people are kind of most connected to everything that happens around them at that time and I think I mean I think there's a lot of reasons that things kind of spiraled the way that they did but one of them I think was the fact that by bringing SFX in and creating a business model that was a really kind of strict business model stripped away a lot of that and so with that kind of you you know by when you have something that's such a a strong kind of passionate thing about someone it's really hard to over over structure it and over kind of monetize it and um you know this is from a world where one of the most amazing guys I've ever kind of worked under is Duncan Stutterheim from ID&T. And he, this is the guy who every time, like two days before any event or festival that they ever did, um, like Mysteryland, for example, he would walk around the site and do a walk around the site. And every single point around the site, he'd be like, we need more here. We need more decor here. This needs to be better. We need more pyrotechnics. We need this to look kind of bigger and larger than life. We need more fish shooting water in this lake over here. And he, to the point where he would, you know, any margin. There's a great film in this, right? (laughs) I mean, isn't there? I would be so, you know, I would, I would imagine that there's probably something in the works somewhere. Probably have to wait a number of years before things are safe and legal to do. But there's, there's many, many stories, but he used to, so he would do that to the point where any margin that there was on the festival didn't exist anymore by the time the festival doors opened, but he didn't care because he wanted to create the best things ever. And then when you're acquired by a company whose goal is to make money and that's their kind of main objective, that goes and that's that magic. And it, it's kind of chipped away at, I think. And so, um, I mean, we had some great success. We did a couple of mystery lands. We did a couple of tomorrow lands um, over in the US as well. One of them was a disaster due to the weather, I believe, in right. Atlanta. Or I believe it was. Um, and yeah, then I, I believe the fire festival ran into a weather issue as well, didn't it? <laughs> it seems to be a common theme. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? It really does. Um, so. Um, I I was there for four years, I think, and went through. There was a whole roller coaster of things going on there. Lots of change all the time, and it was around this time which actually kind of opened the doors to what was my most recent job, I guess okay. you could call it. I mean, it was a job. Um, I was <laughs> watching things unravel at a rate of knots, actually, at SFX, and and kind of trying to understand what the path forward was from that, and. I was contacted by uh, the CEO of Mixmag, the British music magazine, and they he mentioned the fact that they wanted to launch in America and would I be interested in running that. Um, and, and, you're, it, and you're back in the UK at this point? No, 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 no I was still, still in, still yeah, in, still in New okay. York, yeah. Uh, this was about five or six years ago now, so no, I was still in New York. And um, so I said no. <laughs> and then he asked me again and I said no and I could I from having gone from this very kind of large scale events and you know as we talked about this kind of um huge ambitions financially it it but it it took me a while to get my head back into the thought of how um uh, to work with a small media company and what the opportunity could be with that because I didn't have any kind of interest or experience in 
traditional media advertising or how to generate revenue through traditional media channels. And um, so I thought, but then I thought about it for a while and actually thought that it seemed like quite a good challenge. So I decided to join them. And I think the fact that I didn't have media experience is what actually kind of created a very different path uh, for Mixmag in the US uh, from how it was positioned in the UK. So um, we... We got going over there. There was me and one of the guy, Nick DeCosmo, who's the editor, and he kind of headed up creative and editorial, and I headed up the whole business and and revenue and all those things that went with it and approached it similarly to how I'd approached previous brand partnerships in music, and we just started to, rather than kind of selling the just the audience or just the media space, we started to go after, you know, put our balls on the table. I think a lesson I'd learned a bit from Bob Silliman and started to go after the brand briefs and pictures that were going to the likes at the time of Vice and Cornerstone and Fader and started to win some of them. So we built the business in the US really dramatically, quite quickly and um, built the teams in New York and LA. We were running the Mixmag Labs. We had great sponsors for that, we, but we were doing really interesting inter- integrated campaigns with brands like Smirnoff again, which I feel is a recurring theme in most of the jobs. Uh, yeah, but with music, Smirnoff is. I mean, it is just, it's it one is. of those brands so, you see. It is. I feel like it's that's it's kind of more or less coming to an end. I think they've gone in a different direction now, but it, they were really well, it, synonymous it, it's, with music. It's something that I think we'll get onto a bit later on. Yeah. Yes, yes, definitely. So we... Um, we did some great campaigns with those guys We did where they would sponsor the lab, but we made a load of document music documentary series. We did a lot of campaigning as well for gender equality, but also like equality across all underrepresented groups in the music industry. We, we created some really beautiful, we created a series of retreats in Joshua Tree in LA and in California and in upstate New York where we brought underrepresented artists through these retreats and produced music with them. We created documentaries for them. And it was it was really, like, really, really interesting. We did a lot of... And rewarding, I guess. Yeah, yeah, really rewarding. It was a really great pivotal time. And I think we actually made a real kind of noticeable shift and change. And that's when it really excites me when a brand gets involved in music. I think it's working with a brand to understand what they need to achieve, but also how they can... And we'll come to this later, I think. We've been talking about it a lot, but how they can actually really make a difference in the culture that they're investing in. And when a brand agrees to do that and understands that to do that, they're going to get such a stronger affinity than a brand who, you know, badges something or whatever, then it it can really, really work. So, you know, and from there on, if we followed, and this is a very long kind of history of my career, but we followed that with a number of other really great, interesting brand deals with the likes of Samsung and Wave, a tech company. And then Mixmag decided we'd had really great financial success in the US. So they decided to acquire Kerrang, the rock and yep. punk publication, and also The Face, the dormant kind of style and culture magazine. So Mixmag then became Wasted Talent as an umbrella company and we ended up as a kind of independent media company with those three titles underneath us and um, running all those and continuing to grow in the US and it we then did a huge global deal with Budweiser um, again to create a really interesting global music program that was really kind of shining a light on creativity and cultural creativity specific to different countries around the world so we were in India and Vietnam and um, 
Thailand and you know all over the world just kind of really shining a light on the culture and the music that came from those places so um really really enjoyable and so I was there for five years we grew hugely over that time and then and uh, till around a year ago which is when I decided to kind of move on from there so that was my last job job I think in in music and you're back in the UK and I'm back in the UK and that happened um that happened in over summer over summer summer. i mean it's something it's always been on the cards i moved to new york for two years and 10 years later (laughs) i finally moved back to the uk i think the pull of family and things and it also it felt like the right time it was a new york was crazy this year as the whole world was but you know it definitely felt like if there was a time to leave it was and to kind of get closer to family that then now was the time well, yeah, and I was talking to our friend in common, Tom, yes. uh, who's still there, and uh, yeah, he was sort of mulling over this prospect of Thanksgiving that's coming up and Christmas, of course. Yeah, it's going to be I very know. different. It's the constant dilemma. There's a lot of Brits and a lot of Australians and lots of other people in New York, and it is the it's the constant conversation, you know. Yeah. And then the years creep by, but I mean, it was it, I had such an incredible time in New York, and I think the the journey through from working on the team launching Spotify over there to becoming part of ID&T and this huge entertainment acquisition and then kind of going into running a media company over there. It was it was a really interesting journey and I think working on all different kind of angles and sides of the music and brand world and understanding what could be done with them. It was um, definitely a decade uh, that I think has, a lot was achieved and I think has kind of laid the foundations for whatever comes next I mean well, at the moment I'm I'm kind of in the process somewhat accidentally of setting up my own business where I'm working with various different companies within the music industry whether it be labels or media companies and helping them realize their potential and especially at the moment after the the year that has been 2020 pivot slightly um, in some cases to be able to or kind of broaden what they do from a product standpoint to be able to generate more revenue and kind of scale and grow their businesses. So yeah, all that's come on the back of that decade in New York and the work experience there, I think. Yeah, there's lots of serendipity in all of that. And we'll, we'll come back to that in just a second. Mm-hmm. I, I did just have a, a question as you were talking earlier about um, your uh, first sort of that moment of walking into the first uh, white party and just <laughs> going, and going, what on earth is going on here? Because um, it, it, it triggered a memory on uh, I was in Amsterdam at ADE, the big uh, yeah. dance music conference there, and there was a presentation uh, by Beatport, um, but it had some of the SFX uh, execs yeah. in and around. You may have been one of them. I don't remember. Uh, but uh, I think I was definitely there. I mean, Beatport's interesting. Beatport was the music platform that underpinned all SFX's event and live acquisitions. And I am Beatport's actually one of the clients I'm working with again at the yes, moment. I, I feel like everything comes full circle in some way. <laughs> it I does think. Well. And, and yeah. I just finished a stint there as well, uh, helping out the new Did. CEO, Rob, uh, my boy. Um, yeah. So, the, but the question I had was, uh, it was it was something uh, partly came from the my memory of the uh, Romano conversation that I had, who'd been the, yeah. uh, the MD of uh, NME, so this sort of magazine thing there. But it was more about sort of. Back in those days, and I think you've sort of answered this about your description of uh, the IDNT exec who yeah. would just be like, "Yeah, let's just do this and let's do the other." Um, I mean, the, the, have you seen sort of that 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 change as SFX sort of came into it? Because Beatport told this story, and they spun a great story at that at that conference, yeah. sort of you know uh, thing that they did at ADE, which was 
we are going to essentially use data to understand the audience better. Yeah. And, yeah. and there was that sort of immediate link between people going to an event and listening to certain music and then the impact that might then have on music they might purchase through Beatport. Yeah. And, and this was the story. They were, and it was a room full of record companies. Yeah. It was people that were supplying music into Beatport. I mean, how, how, close did, how close did it ever sort of get to that? Um, I mean, did they did they ever really sort of make that link between the live and the kind of the digital side of things in terms of audience? Um, I don't know. That's a tough question, actually, I, because I think I, I feel like everybody's kind of lent into the data a little bit and understands more about their audience's spending habits and, um, you know, the other areas that they're interested in, which I think makes for a brand, an easier brand sell. But um <sighs> Because there were there were things around like they I think if memory serves correct, RFID tags were going to be used to track people as they moved around the different stages oh, yeah. and rooms and things like that. And yeah. and it was and it and again my memory of it was sitting there going that actually sounds really like it sounds like genius, right? Yeah. And actually, if you are SFX and you do own all of these different parts of the business, you can actually do that. It was definitely the plan for a while. And I think there were all kind of plans relating to it as well. And I remember there was actually a conversation about creating based on that and on that data, an AI club that was almost like a kind of living, breathing club and that tapped in to everything from people's mood to whatever they were doing around the venue at the time and responded to it accordingly. And it was that progressed quite far and then didn't get off the ground in the end. But I think that it's always the plan because I've, and I, but I, I, think that the main driving force for that kind of activity is always to monetize further the audience. And I think that there's a limit to how far you can commoditize the audience. And I think the it's it, it's for me, a brand partnership or working with brands and getting brands to be able to invest money into music and the audience who enjoy music works better in, when it's simpler. And when a brand is simply adding some great value that doesn't overcomplicate things, but it's a beautiful surprise or some, is doing something great and putting back into the scene in some way. And I think that it just, I there was, there's a, a kind of hesitancy, I think, among the audience for these things that overcomplicates their experience and that, but doesn't have an immediate payoff, you know? And so I think, I, I mean, I don't know what your experience has been with it and uh, over here in the UK. I mean, I've literally, since I came back to the UK, I've not set but in a music venue very subtly. So I don't know how things have changed over here, but that really dropped off, I think, in the US. It was a, such a huge push for a while, five, six years ago, and everyone was trying to connect everyone digitally to everything and swipe everything as you went past. And I just don't think people wanted it that much. So I think there's a limit to how much you can commoditize the audience uh, for that purpose. And and so I think that we look at... Beatport is great, actually, in terms of the data that they can pull in from their audience because of their spending habits and it's just very easy to kind of track where they are living online but I think to take it further than that and to try and too hard and connect digital and live it's it's not always that smooth and yeah yeah, yeah no, for that's sure. kind of been my experience with it <clears throat> so you've already mentioned 2020 it's been a hell of a year hell of a year yes. uh for, for the globe though which is which is useful i think in some respects you know in the reassuring sense reassuring that you're not the only one I, I think yeah i mean you know it sort of put everybody in the it's like a level playing field in some respects yeah. and so so your your the work that you've been doing with brands and the experience have you seen have we we talked about this a bit before there's been some changes the the, the change in with the way with which they um position themselves the sorts of 
things that they might attach themselves to. I'm going to go with travel as a big one. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of lifestyle brands yeah. will attach themselves to that sort of very beautiful world of you know clean beaches and you know, faraway places and that sort of aspirational kind of like concept. I mean, yeah. how, how have they have they have you seen them deal with that? How have they changed? How what do they try to do? Uh, not necessarily just about travel, by the way, just uh, you know in general. Um, I, I mean, it's been, definitely been a funny year, and I think you you talk about travel, also music. You know, that's the main reason we're here and talking about this. Is they're both sectors that just have, by and large, ceased to exist. It's certainly, the live music and the element where brands can really, really engage with their audience. They've they've obviously you know kind of hit a huge stumbling block this year. But I think kind of partly as a result of that, but also partly just because everybody's been hedging their bets and not sure what direction the world was going to go in next. I think brands have pulled back from all of this kind of activity this year. I mean, I think it's very few brands who have con- who have continued to do what we, I guess, would call cultural marketing and actually trying to kind of reach consumers through their passion points this year. I think there's been a lot of either... Um, pivoting and kind of trying to get behind something related to the pandemic or something that can help or other brands have just focused on key business and kind of battening down the hatches and securing things by focusing on their essential business and essential business marketing and kind of making sure their sales are still going through or that so everything as well as the music industry taking a hit with everything that's happened about it you know I'm sure you've talked about it with so many guests previously over the last few months you know the hit for the live industry, how that's impacted artists. Um, there's also been this impact of brands pulling back their spend in this industry as well. And um, and I, but I do think, I mean, we're speaking in late November, and there's been a real change in the last month or so. I would say where brands are starting to sit up and look about and figure out how they can position themselves in 2021. So, so do you think that the brands are now just looking at this being the version of new normal. So where once before they had all these sort of multiple touch points and things that they could do, music venues being a a high point of visibility, perhaps even ambassador campaigns. Uh, Do you think they're having to sort of adjust for what they think is going to be essentially the new normal? I think so. And I think some did it quickly. Some, um, you know, some kind of pivoted within a month or two and started kind of putting their weight and their money behind uh, things like live streaming of which there was so much in those early stages of the pandemic but I but a lot haven't I think there was a an understandably a huge wave in 2020 of brands just pulling back from doing anything and I think with the I felt I feel month on month people were still kind of waiting to see what would shake out and there was you know, everyone was fi- starting to kind of think about finding their feet again a few months into the pandemic when everything hit as it relates to the race issues and Black Lives Matter. And that really came to the fore. And there was a huge phase from all the brands I work with and speak with about being really anxious or nervous about putting a foot wrong or being perceived to be tone deaf or something that they did landing incorrectly. And it was I think that combined with obviously everyone needing to focus from a brand point of view, needing to focus on their key core business and kind of make sure that their their business and their sales were in a secure position, saw, to, saw them all really pulling back from cultural marketing across the board. So obviously music where there was less opportunity to market anyway, um, but all of the sectors and everyone, the, the brand activity really took a hit. And now... 
as we talk in kind of late November, I feel like there's definitely the brands are starting to kind of pull their head above the parapet and start to figure out how they can show up next year and what they're going to do. I personally, I'm working with some brands who are doing really, really great things and who are addressing what has happened this year, the way that people are feeling, the fact that there is such a need for connectivity and and some of the brands I'm working with are really starting to try and understand that and see how they can facilitate a path forward in as we call it, the new normal or however that may be, but also disappointing for personally, a disappointing lack of brands really kind of showing up and stepping up to the plate as it as it relates to, I guess, the sectors and the areas that they've relied on so heavily for cultural marketing and audience <laughs> connection and, previously. And this is the thing that you said when we spoke that really kind of caught my, my attention because... Yeah. obviously funding and and support for those that have literally had their entire careers, businesses just decimated by the fact they cannot do what they had been doing for however many years they were doing it before. And of course, you know, funding into the music industry can come from various sort of points. You know, maybe you're a recording artist, you can get an advance from your record company or a songwriter, get it from your publisher. That gives you cash flow to exist in the world and be who you are. Um, Or it's VC money, perhaps, uh, you know, where, you sell a part of your catalog or whatever but brands have also always been you know whether it's through synchronization for an advert or 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 something like that or whether it is just brand ambassadors and artists become those and the thing that you said was they have relied upon attaching themselves to these 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 this part of culture so long and have had so much from that in terms of their positioning for their product of their product within the within the world yeah they actually have a duty of care yeah and this is what we spoke about last uh, last time we spoke actually and it's become something that over the past few months i've spent the last 16 17 years and and fundamentally the last decade working with brands who use this industry and every single part of it, like you say, from the sync deals, from to the artists, to the live events, to the platforms that to access this audience and to convert sales for whatever it is they're selling ultimately, you know, that's the end goal for all of it. They've capitalized on this industry to such a huge degree and and in some cases contributed to it really effectively, of course. And but they, you know, they've chosen to align themselves with this culture. And this seems to be it it's become a kind of almost fanatical obsession of mine really over the last couple of months is this realization that a lot of the brands who have attached themselves so strongly to it are really noticeably invisible at the moment. They're not kind of stepping up to the plate. They're still sitting back and waiting to see what happens and waiting to see when it might be safe to reemerge and to realign themselves with this and, and, you know, reattach themselves to it. And it's, I've become really kind of, incentivized I think to try and hurry this process up because I yet yeah, these brands have used this industry for such a long time and if they don't step up now the government isn't stepping up in any way there's not that many other ways to safeguard the future of the music industry anymore and if the brands don't the culture that they relied on so heavily for so long to be able to do their marketing and to be able to reach their audience isn't going to exist in the same way and you know they can't just wait for I feel very strongly that they can't just wait for other people people who are really struggling here to try and rebuild themselves and get themselves to a success level again where a brand then deems it 
safe, I suppose, to realign themselves with it. And I think that there has to be this movement of brands stepping up and kind of rescuing or safeguarding the industry to a degree. And my perspective, I am working with all the music companies I'm working with at the moment in slightly different ways. I'm kind of working with them to create a proposition, whether it's through the record label I'm working with, Astroworks, support is to kind of support this new generation of artists that are coming through that aren't able to break through at a time like this when there's no live and no kind of marketing that goes around live. Or whether it's with a Beatport, for example, or whether it's with a music magazine, I'm kind of working with them to create programs that incentivize and try and bring brands in to to contribute back into rebuilding this culture um and it's it's kind of it, part by design part by default as is the way with most things that i do in my career it, it becomes a thing that is being my goal really is to get these brands who and there's a good handful of them who have relied so heavily on electronic music especially who i feel yeah, really need to step up to the plate and to kind of give back and rebuild this culture. And my perspective from a for a brand's point of view is that this it can only go well for them, you know. If whatever steps they take to put back into this culture, which is really, really struggling, they're going to emerge as the a savior <laughs> essentially. Absolutely. And so it feels like a bit of a no brainer to me, but there still seems to be a, a quite a degree of caution and or just. I, I don't want to say laziness necessarily, but just I, I, there's definitely an element of people wanting to kind of attach themselves to things when they're riding high, but not being there enough, I don't think, when, when things are struggling. Yeah, well, and so it's, I guess, great to be part of a, a company like Beatsport who has infrastructure that can actually offer them uh, immediate uh, touch points with a, yeah. a, a segmentation of, of the audience. Um, and so... Have you been uh, finding that some of the the has it has it kind of switched around? Like in terms of the brands coming in, perhaps once upon a time saying we want to do this, is it now? Is it switching around to you sort of going? Well, actually, have, have you guys thought about doing this, or was it always that way around? No, it, I mean it's it always has been case by case. I think some brands have come with their, their checkbooks and wanted to be told how to connect with the music industry and other brands have got a really strong idea of what they want to do. I think at the moment I've seen the last couple of months, brands are definitely kind of venturing forth and trying to understand what they can do, but with dramatically reduced budgets against what they used to have previously. And But, you know, there are a few who are coming forward and wanting to wanting to do something that addresses the oh, okay. the state of 2020 but i don't think we, i think we still have a long way to go before we can get brands to really contribute effectively in a way that's going to make a big difference yeah and, and do these brands have kind of uh, presumably they have sort of policy divisions and and kind of parts within their organization that is looking at actually what are we saying here and, and sort of you know just checking that press release before it goes out or that video sort of thing that they did and yeah to make it sort of not be i think so i, I think so and i think that they've definitely pulled back i think from too much of their from putting forward too much of their own messaging and i think actually that's where it it's really beneficial for them to partner with authentic kind of trusted companies within the music industry who've been around for a long time. It's kind of a safer option. I think if they can create, if they can lean on a music company who knows whether it's a label or whatever it is, who knows how to rebuild and how to connect with their audience and how to communicate with them. Yeah. Um, 
and relies on them to build a program that they can facilitate, then I think it's a lot more of it's a lot safer way for them to get involved in this than trying to create something themselves that I mean they're quite right to be cautious of the fact things can land incorrectly as they often do with brands. So it's it sounds like a, a, a good piece of advice to a brand at the moment is to just pay attention to the, the, the parts of the industry that you can attach yourselves to and listen to what actually is important to the audience and just be part of that conversation be, be, be available be I think present so i think they and i think and proactive i think they need to it's it's a bit of a call to arms really for brands who have relied really heavily on well it it might not be music it could be art it could be anything all these sectors are really struggling and look at how they've benefited from it or what they've done and how they've worked with them over the last few years and kind of figure out how take proactive steps to contributing to the um to the regrowth of the industry i suppose yeah. so and so the sorts of things that they can offer is obviously you know some money right that's always helpful <laughs> um but uh, but i guess also like their ad inventory um and that could be you know on sort of terrestrial tv or that could be within uh, spotify and the, the the ad funded uh sort of uh, part of that so are some of those ideas just to kind of perhaps focus less on their core product and and actually try and pull through some of the artists uh music um or their whatever they're, they're up to. Yeah, I, I mean, I think they can use all their tools in their arsenal, really, to and apply them in some way. I mean, and all the ones that they used to use, you know, they used to put their media spend against this kind of area and and apply it now, you know, don't wait for things to pick up again, but apply it now to be able to help the industry uh, repair itself. You know, we talk a lot about the artists needing help, kind of having a leg up as well, but a huge part for brands and of for brands is um, the venues is live venues you know this is how especially when you we work so much with fashion brands or drinks brands and it's that kind of live experience that is really important to them and there's I think there's a lot of work to be done around that around kind of securing the venues because they're going to need them all these brands are going to need them in the future they need people to be drinking beer in these venues whilst they listen to music and it, you know they they're not going to be there if they're not proactive about putting their support into it a bit. And there's there's so many exciting programs that you can create with a, that a brand can facilitate. And obviously, financially is a huge part of it, but um, that a brand can facilitate to be able to rebuild these different areas of the struggling industry. I mean, they could, they could actually use the venues as perhaps places where they film things, right? I mean, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Get, yeah. get it involved. Have you seen any of them, you know, like in the music industry, I think all the major record companies came out and said that they were going to put I don't know, a million, a hundred million, 10 million, whatever the number was that they, they gave to like, a, and set up a task force. And they had these kind of, this sort of like rhetoric that was coming around. I remember one of the companies that I, I'm, I'm sporting the, yeah. the jump from empire, you know, we, we did a uh, voices for change compilation yeah. album and uh, you know, and all the money's going through to, to helping what was going on, uh, especially around black lives matter in particular, uh, at, you know, something very close to the, the, the culture of that company. Um, have you seen brands do something similar? Have they sort of earmarked, you know, both human resource as much as cash to do it in a sort of formal way? Or is that still lacking? Is that something you would advise them to do? Not enough. I've, there's there's kind of murmurings of things. And there's a few people, like I say, who've stepped up and they're doing small programs that are about kind of uh, moving forward from the the year that has been 2020 and how to kind of celebrate the new uh, world as it is moving forward. But no, not enough. I think it's been 
largely been down to the music industry to save itself. And it's kind of crazy. Beatbox are really interesting examples. So because they've been doing, I think, you know, of the Reconnect series that Beatport have been doing and they, you know, they started. Well, it, it was the thing that both you and I, uh, we now have a Twitch <laughs> account because of that. <laughs> we, <laughs> we'd shift the age demographic of, the, of Twitch up a few notches. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know, I never thought I would have one, but I do now. Well, um, but um, so Beat, Beatport is obviously the, the kind of online music store and they... Um, have they created the reconnect series to be able to raise money um started in march and april to raise money for those industries all those sectors in the music industry struggling because of covid so they did a ser- they did a couple of like weekend long 36 hour streams those six artists and raised loads of money for different uh sectors within the music industry then they moved on to do something similar for Beirut, which I mean, God, this really has been a year, hasn't it? I almost forget that. Um, They did a Reconnect series supporting Beirut and raising money for the music and art industry in Lebanon. They then moved into um, raising money for mental health charities and those who've been really, really affected this year um, from a mental health perspective. And it's, you know, the music industry is struggling and the music industry is stepping up to help everyone else, to help themselves, to help everyone else. And it's, you know, it's so amazing that they've done this program. And I don't, I, there's rarely a person I speak to in the music industry or otherwise who doesn't know of the great work Beatport has done through Reconnect. And it seems to me that, you know, I think it's always the way that whatever happens in life, it's like the people who need help are the ones who help others more. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not kind of, suggesting that there haven't been brands who've really taken a hit this year of course they have but it's all relative and I think that there's um yeah you said it really well when we first started talking but they kind of have this duty of care and I think that you know they are the ones who need to come forward a bit now I think but you know time will tell and I'm you know I've had some really interesting conversations with people who've been receptive to figuring out how they can um play a bigger role in 2021 but there's definitely still also a um just getting through the last few weeks of the year yeah for sure which i can empathize with yeah no absolutely and and look i think you know we we, we can be you know hard on anyone we like but i think we've seen across the every industry every every part of the world is that the that period of adjustment is is difficult you know yeah. that that whole I mean, I know it from a sort of very micro level. I have a, a very small bar with a couple of my friends and yeah, you know, sure. the constant changes in what government, you know, in, you know, imposed upon us in terms of when we can open, how we can open, who we can have in, how they're going to sit, what they've got to do when they're in there. Yeah. Just keeps, and it changes every week, it feels like. I mean, it doesn't, but you know what I mean? It, yeah. does, it does feel like that. And so I guess for, you know, a lot of these brands that have, you know, for so long, as you said, like for so long, just being like, well, this is how we go to market. Yeah. This is how we launch that new product or how we boost sales during a particular period of the time, you know, of the year, you know. And uh, and they're all probably a bit caught off guard, I would imagine. Totally. And also the I mean, it's in if we're look being really honest about these things and kind of understanding where brands are coming from. And, you know, much of my frustration over the past how many years of working with them has been that these, the brands who have got the money to be able to invest effectively into something like this are also the brands where there is a a huge amount of red tape. And it's like the analogy I always use is it's like trying to turn a tanker, you know, and they're just not so nimble and able to just drop everything. Some brands do it really, really well. You know, we've seen that and brands have stepped up a lot this year in some ways. Are there but, any that you are okay calling out that you that you admire that you think have done a, a decent job here, as small or as big as it may be? 
I think there were a, I'm, there were a lot of brands who st- stepped up. I was still in New York during the heart of uh, the kind of aftermath of the George Floyd killing. And I think I saw there were a lot of brands and, you know, they already had a foot in it, but brands like Ben and Jerry's who really kind of right. made a yeah. bit of a uh, drive forwards. And Are there any programs or projects that you were involved with that, that you saw brands really sort of support and double down on? Um, I'm actually working on a project at the moment with Absolute Vodka, actually. And it's rather than, it's not necessarily kind of um, practically repairing the music industry, as it were, but they're definitely addressing the audience who've really suffered from that lack of connection this year. And we're creating a, a big New Year's Eve program, which is about kind of dancing together as one and kind of waving goodbye to 2020 and kind of trying to create as much human connection and authentic human connection as possible when we're all in our own houses. So, you know, they're taking steps to kind of try and capture some kind of experience that uplifts people and sets the next year off in a better way. Yeah, I'm also working with a brand in the US, a beer brand, not one of the big ones, but a, a smaller beer brand who are looking to, they've kind of moved their headquarters to a, a place in Texas and they're looking to really give back to the music industry there and rather than kind of land as a brand and kind of take over the city there it's starting to we're working I'm working with them to pull together all kind of small local whether it's record shops whether it's small music venues and really kind of support and align with those guys and uplift them in the city so there is, there's definitely some brands starting to do some nice things. And I'm just really hopeful that some of these programs that we're putting together can really trigger some of the brands into action and actually kind of get something off the ground that hopefully then propels others to jump on board and realize it's it's that that missing piece, I think, where there's that in understanding that if if they don't act now in the next few years, the culture that they've relied on so heavily just won't be there anymore. So. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it almost self-preservation for themselves as much as anything else. Yeah. yeah. Um, any closing thoughts? My mind's very focused and full of news of the vaccine and just hoping that... Yeah, sure. I'm just really hoping that all these... You know, I just think back to my... Talking through my career with you now, so much it has been... So much of the stories I have or so much of my experience through my whole career has been based around live and being with people in communities and it's... It, you know, whether it be at a festival or a tiny music venue somewhere or just like with people creating great things. And I think that the this year, as you say, has been a huge leveler and I'm just really hopeful and excited about what's going to come out of the back of it and the fact that the people, you know, everyone's going to put all their energy into creating some great experiences and getting things going again next yeah. year. Yeah, no, I I, I agree. I, I think I think certainly the uh, the appreciation of uh, human connection has uh, has, has yeah, it's, it's something now that pe- people are much more aware of. Yeah, it's people and the power are, of it. Yeah, and I think this why this second wave has been really challenging for people because it's just people really really need it more than ever. This has been going on for a long time now, and I think the people that I look forward to seeing how people bring it back in a really positive way next year. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and presumably a lot of any of the brand output will be about positivity and trying to inject that into yeah. 
yeah, into into the thoughts and minds of everybody out there. Uh, very good. Well, thank you so much. Thank That's you been for fascinating. Having me. Uh, really, really helpful. A uh, really enjoyable chat. Yes, lovely. Thank you so much <laughs> for having me. See you on a dance floor soon, hopefully. Well, absolutely. <laughs> there is a, that's a great way to end. Isn't it? Just that idea. Yeah, good. Okay, so uh, to, to my listeners, thank you for listening. I welcome all feedback, comments, and suggestions for future shows. My Twitter and Instagram handles are at Alex Branson. Um, and you can head to the website www.abc.co and you'll find a contacts page there. You want to get in touch with the show. Uh, and once again, thank you to the incredible Audio Assassins for the music branding to the show. Music in the show notes. 